we've got this class this week, and then we've got two more weeks of this series, and we'll be finished. I'm really excited. This kind of builds to the crescendo. Each class, if you remember, we're kind of doing this as, as hopefully it will be put together as a book when we're through. And, and so you get it like one complete class, one complete class, one complete class, but ultimately it's chapters in a book that should be read in some fairly quick succession to each other. So if you haven't been here... These are available online. If you have been here, put it back in your memory bank. This chapter, this lesson, this Sunday, we're discussing free will, moral responsibility, and the infinite, just God. Free will, moral responsibility, and the infinite, just God. What we've also been trying to do in the process of this series is look at the idea of how our modern culture, our modern science, our modern understanding, our modern learning, our modern language, look at what it says to us about who God is and how everything else grabs definition down from there. So we've looked at physics. We've looked to some measure at biology. We've looked at a number of different things. We've looked at linguistics. This morning, we're looking at both psychology and some philosophy. And let's begin with this. God makes choices. His image bearers, those of us made in his image, also make choices. And a failure to accept that stems from a view of God that is still too small. Now, let me explain where I'm coming from on this. Let's go into psychology for a moment. A fellow named uh, Burris Frederick Skinner, and I assure you, if your name was Burris Frederick, you would go by your initials BF too. His name, he's well known as B.F. Skinner. B.F. Skinner was a Harvard psychologist uh, uh, for uh, decades. He held a, a prestigious chair in the Harvard University Department of Psychology. And in 1971, he published a book entitled Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Beyond Freedom and Dignity. He's known as the father of behaviorism because what he taught and advocated was the idea that we can alter people's behavior especially through positive reinforcement. You get treats and goodies when you do something we want you to do again. And negative reinforcement. Tisk, tisk, tisk if you do something we don't want you to do again. And through positive and negative reinforcement, he had a stunning new plan to alter human behavior. Almost a scary plan to alter human behavior. His behaviorism concept was we can manipulate how people behave through positive and negative reinforcement. Now, if you're a parent, you might be saying, well, there's nothing new there. I tell my children, you do that, you're going to get spanked. You do that, you're going into timeout. You do that, you will lose the privilege of eating dessert. Whatever works. 
Then you've got the parents who understand the power of positive reinforcement. My child, you did so good. I'm so very proud of you. You can watch that child beam and want to do good again. But the father of behaviorism is not all that he was. Because he was a father of behaviorism and what in philosophy would be called a hard determinist. Let me explain to you what I mean. A hard determinist. To do that, we need a chalkboard and we need some chalk. I don't have the chalk, but I happen to be prepared. So here we go. I would like to suggest to you that what B.F. Skinner taught was that if you took a human being and you took everything that that person thinks and everything that that person does, you can figure out exactly where it comes from because it comes from only two places. You pull the brain out, look at the brain, and everybody's making decisions out of their brain. What does you decide to do? Your brain decided. I'm standing here, I have a remote control. Why? Because my brain told my hand, pick up the remote control. Now, why did I do that? You might be saying, well, Mark, you chose to do that. B.F. Skinner said, the word choose is an illusion. Nobody chooses. B.F. Skinner said, you don't make choices. You don't have a choice. What you are going to do is already determined. It's determined by two factors. The first, DNA. Your genetics. What your genetics have produced this physical body that includes your brain. And it's simple division of cells that put your brain where it is. And your brain is a collection of molecules that are put together in such a way that you've got some soupy mixture of chemicals that fire off these synapses that hook up on a neural network that create your memories that make your decisions, which we'll put in quotes if we're talking from him. And that's really all you are. You are the DNA that made your brain and the way the environment has affected you. In other words, if you're reading this, it's because you've been taught to read. Somewhere in your past, that DNA that's made your brain has taught your brain when they see those letters to associate them together with an idea. Everything you do, according to Skinner, is already determined. Everything you do, you don't have choices. You don't sit there and say, well, I think that I'm going to wear this suit today. Oh, you, you pretend you think that. I mean, you might even think you think that. But now, he said, science has proven that I really had no choice given the same dynamic waking up on this day with the way the environment had shaped around me both this day and historically standing in my closet the laws of chemistry and physics dictate that I, my brain will make those synapses together in such a way that I'll pick this suit. 
Now, that's a scary thing. Think about it for a moment. I want you to make sure you're on the same page with me before I tell you why it's scary. If you really have no choice in what you're doing, if you're already, just it's just chemistry, the laws of chemistry and the laws of physics, and there is absolutely no real choice that you made. If you've made no choices, then really you have no moral responsibility. And why is it your fault? If I put on something that just clashes terribly, why is that my fault? It's just this chemistry in my brain. I didn't have any choice. This is the way my mama raised me. Which is not true. And you know it's not true because she told me to never call her mama. Right, mom? Mom we could get away with, not mama. Now, who's responsible for this? Did I pick it? No, not according to B.F. Skinner. It's what? There, there is no choice. There's no moral responsibility. That nut job in Colorado that goes in there and brazenly, repugnantly, sinfully, beyond comprehension, Lee, Kills all those people in the movie theater? Is it true that that's just the way his DNA and his, his environment shaped his brain? So that that set of chemicals with the environment that he had led him no choice but to do it. He didn't have a choice. That's just the, we call it a decision, but it's not. It's just the chain reaction that the laws of physics and chemistry dictate would happen to that brain with those environmental influences that have happened to it in the past. Now, all of a sudden, B.F. Skinner says good and bad is not something objective that's out there like we've talked about in an earlier chapter or an earlier lesson. Now good and bad for him becomes whatever we want He'll call that good. So if we want people to wear bright blue socks with a suit, then we will reinforce behavior when they do it. I like your socks. Well, thank you. I think I'll wear them again. If you think it's bad, then you give the negative reinforcement. You know, those socks look goofy. Do you want to look goofy? No, I don't think I'm going to wear them again. And that's what B.F. Skinner was driving for us to do. Now, he's a hard determinist. Some of you are out there saying, oh, he's not a hard determinist. He's a crackpot. And you can always find some book written by some random crackpot making some random claim. Why do we care what B.F. Skinner wrote in 1971? Well, he wasn't a crackpot. You see in fine print right there at the top of that book, it says, if you plan to read only one book this year, this is probably the one you should choose, New York Times. He's not a crackpot. In 2002, in the Review of General Psychology, a survey 
was published. A large group of psychologists were surveyed and said, okay, who are the most eminent psychologists of the 20th century? Number two, Piaget. Number three, not B.F. Skinner. He's number one. You know who number three was? Sigmund Freud. B.F. Skinner beats out Sigmund Freud as the most eminent psychologist of the 20th century. So he's not just some whack job crackpot that nobody's paying attention to. He's voted the most eminent psychologist of the last 100 years. I think he bears listening to, and I think he bears addressing. So that's what I'd like to do. He's a hard determinist. Now, determinism didn't start with him. Determinism is something philosophers have been discussing, debating, arguing, writing on, for thousands of years. I want to give you a definition of determinism in psychology, I mean philosophy talk. Among the philosophers, here's the way they would say, if you were taking philosophy 101, actually this may not be in 101, maybe this is in 201. Okay? Here's what you would find. Determinism. If you take the state of all things, your brain, what you think, the universe, the world. If you take the state of all things at some specific point in time, point A, we'll say right now is point A. If you could Kodak moment, this precise second, millisecond, nanosecond, and stop every electron, every quark, every lepton, every thought, if you could freeze everything for this millisecond moment. And then come back just a, two minutes later and do the exact same thing. Now things have changed. I moved from over there to over here. And that's not the only thing that changed. You're thinking something different. You're at least tracked with my words. Those of you who are awake, your eyes moved when I moved. That's half of you. You decided to chuckle. If the determinism philosophy says all of the difference between the way things were at that snapshot in time and the way things are at this snapshot in time... All of the changes that took place are due only to the law of physics. You can explain my decision to move, not as some decision I, I made out of my autonomous man and ability to choose freely. Instead, it was dictated, dictated by the laws of physics. Ultimately, even how they play within my brain chemistry. So I had no choice in the matter. And I bear no responsibility. Now that's what determinism is. There is another branch of philosophers who have argued vociferously against that viewpoint. They're called non-determinists. They say, that stuff's wrong. 
Typically, the non-determinist will also say, man has free will. Man can make a decision. We talked about Descartes several weeks ago. Descartes is famous for saying that, that the free will of man is unbounded. Man can make choices. I'm not determined for what I'm going to do. I choose what I'm going to do. There is within me this ability to make a choice. I can decide to go over there or I can decide not to. It's up to me. Now you also have a group of philosophers who have trouble with that. And yet these same philosophers don't want to go with determinism. So they're called compatibilists. These group with their compatibilism are saying, okay, there is determinism, but there's also free will. And they're compatible. And if you read them, it's really, really fuzzy. Because really what they're driving at is not trying to explain why you can have free will and why you can have uh, 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 no will at all. Or at least not a free will. Most of the compatibilists are more driving at this. The understanding that without free will, how is anybody truly responsible for their own actions? And the philosophers aren't happy with the idea that no one's responsible. They won't take that hardcore line that B.F. Skinner does. So they'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, you're determined and, and yes, it's all mapped out. But you've still got enough free will to at least make you responsible for it in the way we see things in the world today. Because if determinism is true, it's not only a question of free will, but how about this? What truth is there in words of praise? Johnny Maniscalco sitting down here on the front row. He does briefing work at our law firm. If I were to say, Johnny, you did a great job on that brief. You ought to be proud. Went to tech law school. Understandable. But you ought to be proud. Now, if I say that, Johnny may deep within himself say, hey, that's good. I did good. But what value is there in my words of dignity, my words of affirmation, my words of praise, if it's all determined? If all he was doing was nothing more than a computer would do? Do I say to my computer, which just follows the laws of physics, you did real good showing that PowerPoint. Feel good about yourself. It did its job. It did the only thing it could do under the circumstances. It was built by Apple. It has a program in it by a bunch of different people. And I told that program how to do these PowerPoint words. It's, it's all laws of physics. And if man is nothing more than a machine, albeit a chemical machine, a biological machine, but something that has no independent ability to choose where everything is determined, if that's what man is, then what value is there in praising? I, there's no more value in me praising Johnny than there is my dear little apple done good. What dignity does man have? Why are we any better 
than this computer? Why are we any more valuable? Because we're a biological, valuable machine. No, if all we are is mechanics, even if it's chemical mechanics, we don't have any dignity. How about this one? What value is there to love? I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my mom. I love my family, my sisters, my brother-in-laws, my nephews, my nieces. I love you. I'm working on loving my enemies. What value is there to that if I'm not making a choice to do it? If all that is is a chemical soup reaction in my brain that's following the laws of physics... I love my wife because my dad loved my mom and I've learned environmentally that's what husbands are supposed to do. And besides, my wife is someone who pushes all of the right buttons for me or at least enough of them to where I love her. Is that what it is? What value is there to me being your friend if I don't, I'm not really your friend? That's an illusion. All of these words are made-up words that make us think there's meaning when there is absolutely no meaning. Now, where does God fit into this debate? By the way, you get now the meaning of the title of Skinner's book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Because he's talking about how you can change behavior in a world where you finally recognize there is no freedom and there is no dignity. And it's kind of a scary book. Because what he ultimately says is, let the people who have the power and the decent knowledge of what this world should be like manipulate the behavior of everybody else to get it there. Because it's all laws of physics and chemistry. So where does God fit into the debate? What does looking at modern psychology, at least Skinnerisms, looking at the philosophers who ascribe to a hard determinism, what does that, and, and, and the philosophers who don't, who say, no, there's got to be some responsibility, there's got to be some meaning to love, there's got to be some meaning to friendship, everything within us shouts that there's got to be something there. What does that tell us as we consider God and Scripture? Well, this is not the, the, the lesson where I'm going to rehash everything we've covered so far, but I do want to remind you. We've talked about how a, a, a God uh, on the scale of, of Scripture's God is so majestic and so far beyond anything we can understand. We've talked about how uh, he communicates to us in language because that's the way we think. That's the way we communicate. You can't think anything without using words. And so a God who is that great, who has interest in those in his image, will speak to them. We talked about how God is personal. We talked about how God is moral. You put all of that together before we get to this chapter and you hold it. And now you plug this in, as we plug God in, plug him in in terms of what we've experienced in our own lives. I think all of us are familiar with the idea of cause and effect. 
You line the dominoes up. You push the domino. The next domino falls because it got pushed. The next one falls because it got pushed because it got pushed. Falls, push, 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 push. Falls, push, 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 all the way back. Cause and effect. I drop this. It falls. Why does it fall? Gravity. Gravity caused the fall. The fall was the effect. Gravity was the cause. What caused gravity? Einstein's got ideas. We know what causes gravity. It's one of the four fundamental forces of the universe. So the question can become, who pushed that first domino? Why are you here? Well, you might say, I'm here, or why are you watching this on the Internet? Well, I am because it's something I I wanted to do. Well, why would you want to do it? Well, you can always find causes. I'm here because uh, 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 this is where I go to church. I'm here because I wanted to hear what you had to say. Well, why would you want to hear what I had to say? Uh, Maybe because I thought it might be useful. Why? Because maybe last time it was, or somebody told me it was, or... I got tricked. I needed a good afternoon nap, and this time to hit it. You know, well, where did I get this from? Reading, talking, discussing. Well, who did I read? Everybody from Aristotle who wrote on cause and effect up to modern scholars who've written on it. Well, where did Aristotle get it? I mean, we can keep going back in the dominoes an awfully far way to ask who pushed the first domino. And you might say all of the first domino was pushed by God. I'm not sure you want to go there. That was a trick question. Hang on. Let's look at it. I want to make a suggestion to you. I want to suggest to you the Bible teaches that we are... uh, By the way, I want to make a suggestion to you the Bible's explanation of all of this and the way things are, and what we experience, and this debate, the Bible's explanation makes more sense to me than anything else I have read on the subject. I'll admit I come to it as a biased person who already believes in the Bible. But that also brings with it a level of cynicism because I am ultimately a hypercritical reader. And so I'm coming to it always examining my faith, as the Bible tells us to do. But the Bible makes more sense in how it explains this than anything else to me. Yet another reason I believe in the integrity of Scripture and that it's not simply an amalgam of what hundreds of people all put together over the last few thousand years. But that it's a coherent communication and revelation from the divine. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says we are a finite people. And I am a finite person. I suspect you are as well. James Hammond's sitting right there on the front row. That tells me, James being a finite man, that he's not outside in the parking lot. He's right there. He's not outside. I can look at James and tell you I don't know how old he is, but he looks older than 30, and he looks younger than 100. I think I'm on pretty safe ground. Ah, younger than 90. But I got James down here, my friend. 
And I know he's not only right here and not out in the parking lot. I know he wasn't here 200 years ago. He just wasn't because he's limited in space. He's right here, right now. He's nowhere else. And he's limited in time. He has a beginning and this body and this life will have an end. We are finite. We're not infinite. I'm not present everywhere and I don't live forever into the future and into the past absent something divine. I certainly don't in this body. We're not only finite people, but the Bible says we live in a finite universe. Oh, don't get me wrong. It's huge. Billions upon trillions of stars, as we've already discussed. But there's an end. The universe is finite. It exists in space and time. That's one of the huge points of Einstein's theory of relativity. We exist in a finite universe. It's got definition to it. It exists in space and time. And the universe has consistent laws of cause and effect. It does. There are causes, you know, Bernoulli has the principles about how gas moves. And we know that air moves like a gas. And because of the shape of an airplane's wing, it causes there to be lower pressure on top of that wing than under the wing. So when that happens as that wing's moving so quick that that pressure void is created, not void, but lower pressure created on top, then the wing moves up to the lower pressure. We can fly. God did not make a magical world where some days when we drop this it goes down, but some days it goes sailing to the ceiling. The world has cause and effect. Reliable, consistent cause and effect. You with me? All right, let's put this together then. We, live in a fi- we are a finite people. We live in a finite universe that has consistent laws of cause and effect. Scoot those over and let's compare that to God. Let's put God into this debate. I'm finite. I exist right here. Space, right now. Time. God is infinite. God is not finite. God is not limited to one place. And God is not limited to now. Look, for example, what Psalm 139 says about God. Psalm 139, written long ago, part of it quoted this morning by Tim McKenzie. Psalm 139. Look at what it says about God and His presence in space. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Where can I hide? If you're finite, God, where do you end so that's where I can go? You're here. I want to run. How do I run from you? Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven... I go to the stars, I go to the moon, I go to Jupiter, I go to Pluto, I go to Orion's constellation. I go to beyond the Milky Way, to the furthest reaches of the universe. God's there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, in the darkest depths, in the place that doesn't have a great definition for the Hebrews, but in their minds was the place of death. You're there. If I take the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there is your hand to hold me and to lead me. If I'm trying to find you in darkness, maybe it's so dark you're not present in a way that you can see me. The light about me, night, but even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness is as light with you. God is infinite in space. He's everywhere. He's also infinite in time. This already said in verse 4, Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Know what I'm going to... You know the future. Says later on, your eyes... Let's find verse uh, 16... Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Doesn't say I was forced to do it. But he knew what would happen before it happened. He's not limited in time. C.S. Lewis said, think of it this way. If you ever start worrying that how can God really keep up with Seven billion people. Let's say we all prayed at once. You remember the rumors in college? That if everybody flushed the commode at the same time, it would flood the entire college and we wouldn't have to go to class. That may have just been where I went to school. We could never quite get it organized to test it, but we felt confident it was something in our back pocket should we really need it that badly. You know, how's God going to handle if all seven billion turn to the Lord and pray at one time? Well, of course, God's so majestic. He's keeping up with the rotation of an electron right now in some far distant star. So he doesn't have any trouble with that. But C.S. Lewis's idea was said, just remember, he also can, he's outside of time. It'd be like being able to hit the pause button every millisecond. And let everything freeze. And he could go find out what Ricky's thinking. And he could find out what Marcy's thinking. And he could find out what Linda's thinking. And he could find out what Genesis is thinking. He can go right down the road. And then, boop, hit the play button again. For a nanosecond. And then, bam, freeze it again. He's got eternity. He's infinite. He's unbounded in time. So when we look at God, God is infinite. Now, we do live in a finite universe... But we live in it, Scripture says, as image bearers of God. Now, why is that important? Look at Revelation chapter 3. At the start of Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches. And seven's a symbolic number because these letters actually apply to all the churches, to the history of the church, into the future. It's, it's, these are important words for all of us to hear. This one's important for us to hear today. We'll start, this is a letter to the church in Laodicea, but it's a letter for us too. So let's listen to it. I know your works... You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. Because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I don't need anything. 
but you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and you ought to try and get something of value, not money. Because I stand at the door whoops, and knock. And anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and I'll eat with him and him with me. We are image bearers. God chose to create us, but when he created us in his image, he created us with an ability to choose. You can choose. You can make a choice to come to church. Now, you have to choose true to your nature. We're all sinful nature at this point post-Adam Eve fall. So you can't choose to be perfect. You're going to, any more than you can, as Holly, my sister says, choose to be a frog. You've got to be consistent with your nature. But within that, you have an ability to make choices. I have to be careful in this section not to use free will. That's the word the philosophers use. But that's not a biblical term. And even the philosophers parse how to define it. But in terms of choice, Scripture teaches that you and I have an ability to make choices. They are not determined and they are not simple matters of chemistry. There is something within us. One of the critics of of Skinner's book in, uh, uh, in 1971, a fellow that we've quoted in this class before, Noam Chomsky from MIT, one of the major thinkers of the 20th century, really ripped into Skinner, really did, in a New York Times book review, and said what he calls science isn't science. Science doesn't make the claims, he said. Who knows whether or not there's something. It may even be something chemical and mechanical, but something that allows man to make choices. You can't assume that there's not. That's bad science. And science does not say what Skinner says it says. In fact, it's interesting to look at some of the tests, especially since functional MRIs have shown how the brain fires on different things. They've done tests to try and determine, do you have this motivation to do something before you make a decision to do it? So that your decision that you think is a decision isn't really a decision. Your body had already decided to do it. And some interpreters of their tests have said, oh, absolutely. Absolutely course they just happen to be determinists and then you have other people who look at the same test and run their own test say that's not what it says so don't just automatically assume because someone like Skinner says well science has said this I can't tell you as a lawyer how many people have gotten on the stand swore to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth and then said what the science clearly is only to be ripped to shreds on cross-examination because it's junk science. Judge John Clinton right here has an order from the Supreme Court of, of the United States of America not to let junk science into his courtroom. You can't believe what people say science is just because... I mean, there was a time where science said the world was flat. Turned out they were wrong. So, you've got choices. This is not the only place we see us. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 5. Paul says, Christ, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. You've got a choice. Jesus said as he looked over Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those 
who sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen her brood, and you would not. I wanted you, and you wouldn't. You made the choice not to. How hypocritical would that be if there were no choice? We're image bearers. The reason I said be careful when you say God pushed the first domino, the philosophers have gone down that route. God did not push the first domino for evil. God did not cause evil in your life or mine. God didn't make Adam and Eve sin. God is not the source of evil, though he works through evil to his good and your good and my good and the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But God, who caused the evil? We did. We're his image bearers. We can make choices just like he did. We can create like not, now, not, not as an infinite creator. I'm not making any universes this afternoon. But I might make a cake. And then there are consistent laws of cause and effect. Tim McKenzie this morning also quoted Romans 1.20. It's a passage we've looked at before. It says creation. And it's where Paul says they are without excuse. People who deny God because creation reflects his nature. We can see in the consistent laws of cause and effect deep insight into the nature of God. Because those insights tell us not only is God a moral God, as we've discussed before, Not only is, last week I think, not only is God a moral God where there are values, and that's part of who he is, that's part of his character, that's part of of him as an entity. But there is cause and effect. And for those who are impure and who choose something that's not God, there is an effect just as certainly as gravity is going to pull down that paper if I drop it. It is a consistent fact. We talked last week when we talked about God being righteous and God being holy and God being moral. I drew a picture similar to this. I said, if we have God, and and at the risk of, of doing something that you should never do, we're going to put a box around God. God's not really in a box, okay? That's, this is just for an illustration. But God is something, someone, who has very definite character. He doesn't change. He is who he is. And we call his morality and his values, his morals, his values, we call good. The Bible also refers to God as light. To give us the idea that there is something defining about him. There is a difference between light and darkness. God is not darkness. In fact, 1 John that says he's light says in him is no darkness. Because there are things that God is not. What God is not we call evil. God is light. He is not darkness. God is truth. 
He is not lies. God is life, true life. He is not death. Now here's what happens. We have choice. We can choose. We can live with God or we can live outside of God. If you live with God, can you be with God in part of Him, in intimate fellowship with Him? Can you be a part of God's family, the bride of Christ, and be evil, impure, lying, dead? No. You just can't. God is the, this cause and effect says, you do this, you die. Paul calls it in Romans 8, the law of sin and death. That's what Christ has set us free from. So this idea of, of cause and effect that we see in the world, you bet it's real. It's a real and accurate reflection of the character of God. How many times do we hear people say, I can't imagine a good, loving God ever condemning anybody to hell? How could a good, loving God ever put anyone to death? Eternal death. How could a good and loving God ever do that? Well, this good and loving God is a consistent God whose character has been made manifest. There is cause and effect. There's true moral responsibility because we make choices. How does God fit into this debate? It's simple. We have moral responsibility. Well, I'm a sinner. I can't help but sin. Oh, don't tell me that. You can't help but sin, but you're still sinning far beyond just your sinful nature. There's not one of us that in the shoes of Adam and Eve haven't done that and worse. Even after we've been set free from our sinful nature, there's not one of us that's not still sinning and choosing to walk in it. Choosing. We have moral responsibility. And the laws of cause and effect and the laws of consistency dictate that an unchanging God who is good, who is moral, who is upright, who is pure, that good God, unchanging God, properly must judge that which is unrighteous. It's just the way it is. Which means there sure better be a solution or we're all in trouble. And there is. And next week I hope you come back because next week we'll go into some detail. I hope you come back because next week is entitled The Audacity of the Resurrection. The answer to this is Jesus. A just sacrifice and death, a just consequence for sin. And a just and appropriate way to, to uh, uh, apply that atonement to us. And if you have intellectual challenge, did, did he really come back from the dead? Please come hear my closing argument on that next Sunday. Because I think I can persuade a jury. I'm certainly persuaded. 
the right, wrong, and moral God is the God of justice and consistency as we have free choice. Here are our points for home. Where can I flee from your presence? The psalmist asked it. We've got a God with no boundaries. I say, you know, oh, but we drew a picture. Didn't you draw a picture with boundaries? Okay, boundaries to his nature. He's not evil. He's never going to be evil. He's not a liar. He's never going to be a liar. But he doesn't have the boundaries we have. He doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. He can tip the first domino. It's just we can get involved in those dominoes too and we can start tipping them our way. Because he made us in his image so we have an ability to choose. But God is consistently true to his character and true to his nature as someone who does not have a cause. You can't look, you know, even the scientists are struggle to figure out who, 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 the scientists who are atheists, there are a good bit of scientists that aren't, but those who are atheists struggle to figure out, okay, well, what started the first domino? What is it that was called by Aquinas the uncaused cause? What was out there that wasn't caused? Somewhere there's the end of the rope that started this whole chain of affairs. It's God. Well, who made God? Nobody. He's infinite. Well, that's just as incomprehensible because there should, there's an infinite universe then. We'll just say that. No. The universe lives by laws of the universe, and those laws don't dictate that it's an infinite universe. Oh, there are some theories that some physicists have come up with now, but they're certainly outrageous theories that you've almost got to want to believe. And the idea of an infinite God who is outside of this presence, a finite man's not going to understand. I have limitations. My brain just isn't going to get wrapped around infinity. You give me the infinite number and I'll add one to it and I got you a new one. Infinity is a weird duck. Um, You know, the, the paradox of you can never get from here to there. I can never get from here to that speaker because what I'm going to do is first go half of the way. Then I'm going to go half of the way again and half of the way again and half of the way again and half of the way again. And if you're doing this mathematically, the one half becomes one fourth, one eighth. One sixteenth, one thirty second, one sixty fourth, one twenty eighth, one one twenty eighth, one two fifty sixth, one five twelve, one one thousand twenty four, two thousand forty eight. You can keep going. It doesn't end at four thousand ninety six. It just keeps dividing, dividing, and you never quite get to one if you just keep going halfway each time. See the mind doesn't grasp infinity. We don't understand these things. There, there are lots of issues. But I can tell you this, where do you flee from the presence of God? Nowhere. Nowhere. I can tell you this, Paul says in Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, because that's my choice. And I want to make wise choices. And the last point, which is a preview peek into next week, 
The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It is right for God to judge evil. It's just, it's right, it's the right thing. There's no choice. It's cause and effect. You sin, you die. You leave God in his life and you go into death. That's just the facts. Jesus doesn't say, uh, the John 3, the last verse, he says, those who don't believe in the Son... On them, the wrath of God, quote, remains. It's already there. God, sin is death. Oh, you, you may not be feeling it yet, but once you get over 50, you will. I tell you, I'm on the downhill slide. Sin is death. I'm not living forever. Absent some help. And that's Romans 3.21. A righteousness of God is made manifest. A righteousness that's not based on what you do, but based upon your faith. A faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul will spend many chapters explaining that afterwards. I just want you to come next week for the audacity of the resurrection. Would you pray with me? Our God in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We praise your holy name. We recognize you are so far beyond us and why you have stopped in our world and reached out to each one of us to form an intimate, bonding relationship with us is hard to understand. Your love in the depths of your caring for us is hard to understand. But we graciously undeservingly with confession readily on our tongue for how inadequate we are we graciously thank you for that love and we embrace you through Jesus our Lord Amen